Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. That's 1 King chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Piel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Wonderful to be opening God's word this morning. My name's Andy, if I uh, don't know you. Um, I'm really, uh, I have a helper today, by the way, little Josh, um, he's well, but when you've been sick, you can't go to daycare for 48 hours, which is very inconvenient, uh, as those who have kids in daycare know. So that's, um, he's here to help and may have interjections at different points, (laughs) depending on what's going on with Peppa Pig. Um, Now, I'm looking at uh, Jezebel. I I sort of have a a thing about Jezebel. I actually think she's a really fascinating character and completely misunderstood. now, I mean, to call someone a Jezebel in, um, in different times and places has meant different things. Um, during the slave trade, it was actually a tro- in North American slave trade in the 19th century, it was actually a trope used to uh, disparage African-American women as being sort of sexually promiscuous. So it's got quite an awful history in that way. Um, even today, though, in modern Christian sort of pop theology culture, um, there's this thing called the Jezebel spirit. Now, does anyone have the Jezebel spirit? <laughs> I mean the book, not the actually the, <laughs> the thing. Um, so the Jezebel spirit is this uh, sort of pop theology thing. Um, I mean, to call someone a Jezebel is really to to say that they um, are sort of like trying to tear a marriages or tear churches apart. Normally, the connotation being that they're using uh, particularly their because it's always women who are Jezebels um, using their sort of feminine wiles, kind of um, sexual uh, attraction or um, something in order to um, destroy uh, families, to destroy marriages, to destroy churches. And it's often linked to actually having a demonic spirit, particularly a Jezebel spirit. If this is all new to you, bless you. <laughs> right, so don't go find this book. Um, but there is a website you can go to, which I found this morning, which uh, will let you actually, uh, the website's called How Do I Know? Or um, How Do I Know If I Have the Jezebel Spirit? 
and you can go and you can do a self-diagnostic, those of you um, here. But it explains here that Jezebel is someone who uses sexual persuasion to get someone to do something for her, a femme fatale, but much more insidious. Most likely it goes on, a person calls someone a Jezebel if they use the powers of seduction to woo a married man or man of God away from the path of righteousness, end quote. So apparently against such irresistible sexy powers, men are poor, helpless, defenseless, uh, and unable to resist, or at least that's what the website suggests. I actually happen to think, um, this is a side point, adult men can and should be held responsible for their own decisions, but that's a whole other uh, thing. Why am I talking about this? Because this is not anything to do with the actual Jezebel of the Bible. And that's what I want to sort of um, show you. I mean, she is an awful character and she is uh, extremely evil, but not for the reasons that I guess in pop culture she is remembered. The biblical character Jezebel is much more interesting than that, much more powerful than that, much more destructive than that. Uh, It has nothing to do with her sexuality. The only marriage she gets involved in is her own marriage. The the real Jezebel is a formidable adversary of God's people and she is strategic, ruthless, brutal and very effective. Let's get into the text and find out how she does it. In the 38th year, actually we'll go from um, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So some details here which you might miss the first time through. Uh, We're in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. These days we measure time AD or BC after when Jesus was born. They didn't know when Jesus was going to be born, so they used a different king of David uh, born in, uh, in Israel. They measured it, uh, in this case, by the, the king Asa, king of Judah. So they're dating it by his reign. Um, and uh, also, as uh, Helena very helpfully mentioned, we're in the northern kingdom. So this is divided kingdom territory, right? So originally Israel, 12 nations, under God, one king in Jerusalem, happy days. Didn't last for very long because the 10 northern tribes, they break away and they start getting, shall we say, creative with their worship and they have their own king. I'd like to remember New South Wales North, Victoria South, New South Wales evil, depraved, uh, South much more stable and godly. Anyway, or Queensland, New South Wales, if you've, anyway. You can work out which one you want to use. The point is they're in the divided kingdom and they're dating the arrival of Ahab based on who's king in the south. That's what, that's what the reference there to Asa is. King Ahab, not the Moby Dick chasing one, but a different one. Uh, that's a reference that can go down. There you go. Um, <laughs> there's this book, uh, Moby Dick. Anyway. Uh, son of Omri. All right, we're told that he's the son of Omri. In fact, the narrator tells us that he's the son of Omri probably about three to, times too many, uh, which is a clue that that's meant to be significant. So why do we keep hearing that he's the son of Omri? Well, the son of well, Omri, who was Omri? Omri was a king, but he wasn't originally a king. Originally, he was a commander of the army. How, might you ask, does the commander of the army become the king? Very simple, he mounted a coup. And so he took the throne by force by killing the other guy. Fun fact, the king that he took the throne from had also taken the throne by force in an armed coup. It's a bit of a theme, shall we say, in the northern kingdom. Now, you compare the dates and the times for the different kings, north and south, you get this impression that while the south is relatively stable, 
right? They have kings who are all the sons of David, the, the, the right line, the, the, the family line. By breaking away from that, the northern tribes, it, it, it's all bets are off, right? All bets are off. Anyone can have a swing at being the king of the northern kingdom because they, they've abandoned God's mandate. And, I mean, some of them reign for like seven days, right? Like the guy that was before, before this reigned for seven days. You get this sense of just political chaos. But more than political chaos, there's also theological chaos in the north. It's a hot mess because what Ahab does, and Ahab reigns for 22 years, so he's an outlier. You might think, oh, he must have been good. No, he's not good. Because what he does in those 22 years is disastrous for the northern kingdom. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Well, that's a big call, but it's true. So say that he did uh, more than them. I mean, every king in the book of Kings gets sort of a ranking, uh, like a grading sheet, marking criteria. So what's on the marking criteria? We give you marking criteria for your essays. There's probably three or four things that we're looking for. In the book of Kings, they're just looking for one thing. Did they bring worship in the northern king closer to God or further away? Did they make it more idolatrous and depraved or less? Did they get rid of the altars to the wrong gods or put more in? That's the one criteria. Are we moving closer to God or further away? And uh, Ahab (laughs) doesn't do a very good job by that criteria. Uh, He um, makes things very, very bad indeed. Um, This is all linked to Jeroboam, right? So he's considered at verse 31 trivial He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, you often see they reference Jeroboam. He's the original breakaway king. And they sort of, he's a bit of like a a ranking, you you can kind of a a reference point for northern king's depravity. Because what he does is initially they're still worshipping the right God. They're just worshipping the right God in the wrong way. So they break away from the south, they break away from the temple, and they start to get creative. They put some new shrines in place. They, you know, kind of tweak the law of Moses a bit, bring it up to date. You know, you've got to move with the times or people won't come to your church. Um, and, and he does that. He changes things in order to keep um, people happy. So it's the right God, but it's just in the wrong way. When I say just in the wrong way, not just, it's the wrong way. And the thing is about approaching and worshipping God, you do that on his terms, not yours. You don't waltz into God's presence. You approach on his terms. So even worshipping the right God in the wrong way is devastating. That's the sin of Jeroboam. It was probably still worshipping Yahweh at that point, but once they open the door to to kind of compromise on that, uh, they end up worshipping not only the right God in the wrong way, but also the wrong gods in the wrong way. Okay, so it's all a bit downhill. Anyway, so he considers it not only trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, that is, continues the false worship of the north, he makes one key decision. All right, so Jeroboam up to this point has been the gold standard for idolatrous, bad leadership. No one has been able to surpass Jeroboam by this point, which Ahab says, hold my beer. He also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Right now, um, what's the problem with Jezebel, with marrying Jezebel? Uh, well, actually, just fun uh, little, little fact. Um, Jezebel is a foreign princess. She's kind of um, a very important person. Her name is actually not Jezebel. Her name is Isabel. 
So Isabel, say that right. Uh, Isabel means um, uh, something like, where is the prince? Right? But um, they just slightly tweaked the, 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 um, the, the vowel sounds to make it sound like another word, which is zebel, which means dung, right? like poo. Right? So this is kind of poo jokes, uh, which <laughs> my family is into at the moment. Um, and, and so she's the dung queen. Right? Now, why do they make this sort of cheeky kind of comment about someone in a position of power? I like that. Uh, it's not because she's foreign or she's a woman. Right? The Bible in other places has no problem with foreigners being in the royal family. Think of Rahab, right, who ends up, you know, she's a Canaanite woman from Jericho, um, and she helps the spies, she acknowledges Yahweh, and she ends up in the family tree of King David and Jesus. Right? So it's not that she's foreign and certainly not that she's a powerful woman. The problem is probably to do with the other detail we're given, which is that her father was uh, Ithbal, right? Um, Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Now, Ethbal, the clue is in the name, Baal, right? Now, her dad is potentially even a um, uh, kind of a, a, a devoted worshipper of Baal. She may have been even a, a priestess herself, right? So she's bringing in Baal worship as part of her family sort of traditions. And she doesn't subtly do this, right? She, you know, she's not seducing anyone. She's reforming the nation with brutal bureaucratic efficiency. Right? Under her influence, because she's the one running the show, let's be clear, that Ahab is not the main player. Right? He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. There's about too, too many Baals in that sentence in case you didn't get the point. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So at this point, things are going really worse, downhill, not only compromising on true worship, but effectively transforming the northern kingdom, this breakaway tribe, into a kingdom that worships Baal. She was very good at this. And Baal was an attractive uh, proposition for the people. Uh, Bill Clinton's campaign strategist famously said, it's the economy stupid. Right? It's economy. What, what will people vote for? Whatever makes the economy work, whatever gives them you know, the, the, the best return in their pocket. And Baal, well, he was into the economy. He's the storm god. So if you want to get your crops to grow, if you want to be prosperous, vote for Baal. Now, whether he could deliver on that is another question. You don't have to worry about that after the campaign's over, right? Right? But it's the economy stupid. That's, that's why Baal was so attractive, because he promised prosperity. And Jezebel promised prosperity. You just need to compromise a little bit on this whole monotheism thing that you have going here in Israel. Abandoning the true God, though, is a, a devastating mistake every time. Why do people do it? I'll tell you why people don't abandon the true God. It's not because they want their lives to be worse. Now, that is the effect, often, we abandon the true God, we compromise our worship, lives, things don't improve spiritually or in any way. But they do it, we do it because we have something on offer. Prosperity, at least the promise of prosperity in this case. Put your career first, then God second, and you'll be financially secure. Pursue that forbidden relationship and maybe finally you'll be understood and happy. Now, they're lies, just to be clear, and always have been. 
But you've got to understand why people go in for them, why we go in for them. It's because of what they offer, not because we want to make a train wreck of our lives and our ministry and our churches, but because they're attractive lies. Uh, a warning for me here is that Ahab actually never abandons Yahweh completely. Right? It's not like she's like, honey, you need to convert completely to Baal worship. You've got to stop worshiping Yahweh. No, it's just little compromises. You can still have your Yahweh temples. You're still being faithful to the law of Moses. You just have to have Yahweh plus, which is a little bit like a friend of mine's vegan, and um, I've, I've told her I really appreciate all her arguments and her delicious vegan food, but um, as for me and my house, we're going to be vegan plus. <laughs> right, we'll ha- we, we will have your delicious vegan food and a side of bacon. Right? And the thing is, <laughs> you, you, like you can't be vegan plus, right? and, and, you can't, and you can't be Yahweh plus, and you can't be Jesus plus, right? And that's where the compromises are insidious. Ahab still prays to the right God. He still repents and is rebuked by the prophets later on. His children are named after Yahweh. You know that from the names of his children. So his sin is compromise. And that compromise is as deadly to him and the nation as a whole as if he'd just gone all the, you know, the full hog and just become a Baal worshipper. One of the threats that we're aware of to the people of God is outright oppression. Violent persecution. Shut them down, cancel them. But there's a more insidious type, which is to compromise, to be seduced by compromise. I uh, heard on social media recently that we need to really change our theology here, friends. They They were quite persuasive about it, actually. Otherwise, people will stop coming to our churches. I can't remember even what the issue was, but it was some issue where the, 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 the clear assumption is Stay faithful to the Bible and people will just stop turning up. Now, I'm not actually sure that's you know, kind of been panned out as history has shown us in the last few years. But that's, that's the, the call on you as ministers, right? Compromise. Or, or, or the church won't grow. Or people won't come. Or you'll be you know, culturally irrelevant. God forbid that we should be culturally irrelevant. Anyway, they're not asking us to become Buddhists. They're just asking for us to tweak some things. And that's the sin of compromise. I don't mean being uncompromising people, by the way. And that's the trick. Don't be jerks. But know when you're being asked to compromise something core to the worship of God. Anyway, Jezebel ran the show. She did a very good job. And she was very good at getting people to compromise. Now, you could uh, try attracting them to the uh, worship of Baal, or she could just round up all the prophets of Yahweh and have them put to the sword. She tries that as well. That is very persuasive when it comes to compromise. I'm going to skip over uh, for time the little verse there about Hiel of Bethel. Fun thing to talk over morning tea. Why is this put right here? What is it about remembering the promises of God to Joshua that we need to hear right now? I have some thoughts, but no time to explain them. So we'll... Skip on to the last bit, which is chapter 17, verse 1. Imagine what it would have been like to be a preacher or prophet or teacher or priest when Jezebel's running the country. Powerful, brutal, ruthless. She has you in her sights. What do you do? 
compromise, run away, stay very remote from her. Well, there was a prophet, Elijah. Uh, there was another one, Obadiah, who worked in the government. Uh, these are stories that come on um, later who had to make a choice about what they would do. Obadiah chose to shelter a 100 priests of Yahweh in caves. He sheltered them from Jezebel. And Elijah, well, he refused to back down from telling it how it was. And that's why I've moved, uh, I put our reading to the next verse because I think it's uh, really significant. Elijah, chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, that's a direct, wow, you're taking on the storm god right there, right? He's gone there, right? He's not skirted around the issue. He said, oh, yes, storm god Baal is in charge. Let's see about that. Fair to say that calling out Baal as a fake god doesn't go down very well with Jezebel, And life becomes very hard for Elijah and all those who are faithful. But they refuse to go with the crowd. They refuse to compromise. And I think this is a timely message for us, not because Jezebel's in charge or there's a Jezebel spirit anywhere in in government, but just that the winds of culture are against us, friends, in many ways. There are formidable opponents like Jezebel, maybe not quite as interesting or comic character-like, Uh, as Ahab and Jezebel, but just as motivated by a vision of society which has little room for God. That's the thing. They don't think they're being evil. They think they're transforming society for the better. And in that vision of society for the better, there is no room for a healthy church and there is no room for people who worship God. And so in response response to some of these uh, wins, which we've been picking up, two friends of mine recently left Melbourne Right? They, they saw the way things were going with some recent legislation and policy changes in Victoria, one of which would make it harder, was aimed at making it harder to speak the word of God, aimed at discouraging religious groups, including Christians, from practising their religion. They saw this and they decided they couldn't live in this godless state anymore. So they moved to Queensland, God's own country. Amen. <laughs> going to say something really mean but we're recording so yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, re- I resonate with these concerns I think um, I, I don't think that they're being uh, melodramatic in, in detecting this right when you uh, go to your local primary school and teachers are sharing a vision of humanity that is counter to the bible you, that's that's a real thing for when, for your kids to be hearing and that was one of their concerns but run away from that Elijah didn't run away from that. Elijah stood his ground and he spoke the truth, come what may. And so I hope that we won't all move to Queensland. Some of us can. But we won't just move to where it's easier or abandon, and not just for our sake, but for the sake of Melbourne or wherever we are. Wouldn't it be be a tragedy? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if God's people weren't prepared for a little bit of friction in holding out the word of God? We're not called to retreat from uncomfortable missions, 
We're not told to avoid hostile or hard audiences. But for the sake of those people who are precious to God in Melbourne or wherever we end up working, we hold out the truth. We hold out the word of God. We do what we can, like Elijah, to speak what God has called us to. And friends, I'll pray for us in that because that will require great wisdom. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word and that even when the winds of culture and politics seem to push against it, your truth never changes and your promises never fail. Thank you for the book of Kings that reminds us that we are called to be faithful no matter what powerful people have other ideas. We do pray for our brothers and sisters everywhere who are facing strong opposition today. We think especially of those in parts of the world where things are heating up for those who bear your name. We know a day is coming soon when the name of Jesus will be honoured on every place on this planet. We pray that until then you would have mercy on our city and our nation and our world, that you might bring many of our neighbours back to true worship of you. For the sake of your name, we pray.